Welcome again to the Room of Lives. Today we are speaking to my friend Jackie, who is a young medical data scientist. In this part of our conversation, we discuss our thoughts on a post by the photography project Humans of New York, which you may have heard of. Basically, it's a guy who goes around taking pictures of people on the streets and talking to them and getting surprisingly deep and intimate even in these first interviews. He then posts those pictures paired with things that the subjects have shared about their lives, their struggles, and their ideas. There was a particular recent photo and quote from the project that Jackie and I decided to discuss on the podcast since it brings together many of our common interests about consciousness, the nature of reality, the absurdity of life, existentialist anxiety, and the motivations for living and making meaning. If you enjoy visiting the Room of Lives, consider supporting me by donating Dai or Ether to abranil.eth. That's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. Okay, so what is this about? This Sony post is like a guy. Is this recording? Yeah, let me... Little thing here. Okay, so it's a picture of a guy sitting on a lawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got like curly hair. The sun is behind him. And he's, he's looking at the... He's quite good looking. I he's say. quite good looking, yes. although he has a... I don't know if this is post facto... But he has this like kind of intense look. He's like a little intense. Yeah, he looks pretty serious. Pretty serious and maybe a little sad or also. Or like melancholy. I would I wouldn't use the word sad. I would use the word melancholy. Yeah, melancholy. Yeah, and he has got a nice like leather jacket. I like his shoes. All right. So what is he saying? He's saying, yeah. I mean, this is a Humans of New York post. So this guy is saying. <clears throat> It's a question of point of view. (laughs) Okay, so we have a cat. (laughs) We have a cat in the background who's trying to play with a squirrel outside of the window. So that's where the noise is coming from. It's a question of point of view. How can consciousness exist in a material world? Perhaps consciousness is an illusion. But if I perceive consciousness to be an illusion, then surely I must exist. These questions give me so much anxiety, I can't stop thinking about them. I'm not attentive when other people speak to me. I forget to clean my room, I don't do my homework, I can't learn my lines in drama class. It creates so many problems in life. My parents tell me you could win this award or you could easily make these grades, but you don't care enough. They have taken me to 10 psychologists. Never a diagnosis, they just say that I'm a dreamer. And in this world, dreamer is not good. Dreamer means child. I need to become an adult and do material things so that I'm stable, so that I can buy a house one day, so that I'm not just living beneath a bridge thinking these thoughts. But it's so hard to find the energy. Before I begin, I must know if life is absurd. I can't live in an illusion. I want to be lucid. 
I need to know that I'm doing things for a reason, that I'm expending energy for a reason. If death is the end of all this and nothing but emptiness after that, then it's a terrible problem. It would be better to not exist than to exist in a world without meaning. Okay, so let's just start with that. What, what, just off the bat, what are your uh, views on his perspective? I definitely feel very relatable to like what he was describing in this post because I think at one stage of my life, I've also had all like the similar questions and felt unmotivated because, you know, what am I doing with my life if the, if the whole world is just absurd yeah. or it's just a stochastic process or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I would recommend this guy to read Camus if he hasn't. Yeah. Because I think eventually... Um, absurdity kind of touches upon the question that he talked about and well of course he didn't give an answer but it might give you a different perspective in acknowledging that this world is absurd but how do you live with the absurdity and you know go on with your life and stuff yeah. like that so how how would you say how do you so do you, do you acknowledge that life is absurd i do Okay, so here this guy asks, like, I need to know if life is absurd. For you personally, the answer to that question is already it's known yes, and yes. that it's absurd. Yes. Okay, so now what this guy says is that if life is absurd, it's like a big problem for him. Right. Is it a big problem for you if life is absurd? Currently, no. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it used to be or I... At one point of my life, it used to be a problem that I think about often. Um, but right now, it's just like something that I live with, I think. Mm. Yeah. So, what does it mean to say that life is absurd? What does that mean? Does it mean that there is no intrinsic purpose or meaning? Yeah, or like a lot of things are just not meaningful. There is no um, obvious patterns or rules that as other people have described to you before like for example if you make enough effort then you're going to succeed in life achieve many things this is one of the assumptions people make about life but acknowledging life is absurd is eventually breaking those assumptions and acknowledge that there's no assumption at all that's that that would be able to hold yeah yeah so i feel like this the fear is that once you let go of these ideas of meaning and purpose that you're going to be gripped with this kind of anxiety mm -hmm. and like a lack of motivation to do anything in life because if there is no purpose why should i get out of my house and do anything yeah so how do you deal with that right so you're saying basically like if people know all the assumptions are not true then they just kind of give up because they know there's no like coherent rules that they yeah. could do things based on. Well, it's it's kind of like asking, you know, if I know there's not gonna be a meaningful result of the things I'm I'm trying to do, then why would I initiate my effort in the first place, anyways, right? Um, and I think a lot of things, or like a lot of times right now, I do things not for the end results or for the sake of having 
a result at all, but more just like doing the things for the sake of experiencing it. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So I think if you give up the, the thought of, oh, there has to be something at the end of the road that's yeah. waiting for me when I'm like walking down this path, yeah. then you would be much more happier and you would care much less about whether those assumptions hold or not. Yeah, yeah. I think I kind of agree with that statement. Yeah, th- there isn't going to be much of a debate between the two of us possible because I Probably. feel like we're kind of aligned. We have a very similar view towards life. Yeah, I but I think when I was at when I was your age, I was a lot more aligned with the perspective of this guy in the Honey Post. Oh, like just being lost and confused and Yeah, a little yeah. bit. Like, you know, I used to be I used to have like episodes of depression. And one of the things that I guess you feel while you're depressed, not just me, but also other people, yeah. is that you don't find any point, purpose, or motivation in life. Right. And so I used to really kind of struggle with this question. So what is the point of anything? And there not being any point... Well, I guess it, I was correct in suspecting that there is no point in anything. Yes. I still stand by that realization that there is no point... Or at least the way that I used to understand the point and purpose as having like this career, you know, I, I, I'm growing up and I want to become this theoretical physicist and kind of unravel the laws of nature or also other things that are on my list of things to do. And that was the point or purpose of life. And at various different points, it would be revealed to me that that's kind of absurd. Like, you know, it's what is the point of doing that? Yeah. And I think I was correct in that. In understanding that there is really no purpose the part where which was not correct is the resultant depression that I would feel that oh because there is no purpose in life I feel bad about yeah. it and I think that part is not logical the first part might be kind of logical where you see that there is no purpose but why should the lack of purpose mean that you are now kind of depressed All right Maybe intrinsically, you think there should be a connection between, you know, there's a meaning in life and making an effort. So once that connection yeah. is not there anymore, or the, the presumption of why this info just broke for you, then you don't see the point of... Yeah. Partly, trying. I think it is social conditioning that, yeah. you know, when we are children we don't do things because of what lies at the end of the road. We are doing things just because spontaneous uh, things arise in the moment. I'm just going to play now and I'm happy or whatever. I'm not doing things for the future. Things I'm doing now are not an investment for what they will mean in the future. It's just what we're doing now. So in that sense, I think humans by default are much more in tune with the absurdity of life when they're born and when they're young and they don't mind you know they don't they're not depressed well yeah okay so there might be times where you're just sad but you're not sad because of your concerns about the ultimate point of life yeah and i think what happens probably is when you get a little older you get all this cultural conditioning from other people which shapes you towards and shapes your values and motivations towards the future 
you know, you need to become this person in life, you need to have this career or money or fame or recognition or you know, you need to have loads of sex or whatever. I don't know, whatever motivates you. Mm-hmm. And then and you get motivated by this. And then at some point, if this kind of starts breaking down, then the initial reaction is like, oh, oh my God, my life is kind of falling apart. Yeah. There is no meaning. Although I'm not entirely sure if it has to happen that way. So I'm saying it like a cause and effect that you have this realization that life is pointless and then you have the depression. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it could be the other way, but you don't notice it. You feel a sense of depression fundamentally arising within the body for no apparent reason. I think these phases can kind of come and go. Well, a lot of times it's also biological. Yeah. So So it can be some other reason that the depression is arising. Yeah. But when the depression and anxiety arises, one of the easiest ways to lock on for an ostensible or an apparent reason is, oh, because there is no point in life. So it could be the other way also, the causation. Like we just attribute all these feelings into this kind of root cause or something. Yeah. Yeah. My question is though, and I've been thinking about this for a while actually, does it matter to actually ask the question whether there's any meaning in life, yeah. you know, because I think for the, for the, you know, example you just mentioned how children are usually not asking this kind of questions and just naturally, um, enjoy what experience they have. Yeah. There is a slight difference between that and my status right now, because for children, they might not think it matters to ask the question at all. Hmm. But for me, I think it quite matters yeah. to be able to ask the question and then get the answer or not the answer. But for me, it's important to acknowledge, oh, I wonder, you know, whether this is true. Yeah, yeah. Or just to bring up the question in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I kind of agree with that. Okay, so I'm going to try and articulate something that is kind of difficult for me to articulate, yeah. but I think it's important, which is that the intellectual pursuit of trying to get answers to questions is one thing and the attitude in general in life of whether I'm happy, I'm loving, uh, I'm enthusiastic or I'm gripped by anxiety and fear and hopelessness is another thing. Mm -hmm. Um, When we have these conversations about these philosophical things, there is the assumption that the intellectual, the answer or seeking the answer to intellectual questions is going to give us happiness or anxiety or deliver us from anxiety. And I think there's something a little flawed about that. These two things are kind of in parallel. For example, you could be a philosopher who's asking a bunch of intellectual questions while at the same time kind of gripped by this energy of anxiety. Or you could be asking intellectual questions of the universe and going about on that that, that kind of human enterprise of asking questions and getting answers from a place of curiosity and joy and engagement with the world. And so what matters in addition to these questions of asking, hey, is there a point to life or not? is the attitude with which you're asking these questions. If you're asking these questions from a place of anxiety and fear and hopelessness, you're going to get different answers than if you 
ask these questions from a place of love and joy. So I feel like the answers to these questions are kind of subjective. Yeah. And also the process of trying to get to the answers can either be uh, 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 an exercise in more anxiety or it can be an exercise in joy. I agree. And I think that also depends on what's your attitude towards things or things that are almost always going to be unknown. Like how do you deal with the possibility that there's always going to be things that you don't know and you don't understand. Yeah. And there's always going to be things that puzzle you or buffle you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because for some people, it's just painful to know that, you know, I'm asking all these questions and I still might not be able to get any answers yeah. at all. But for some people, even knowing that, it's still do not stop them from yeah. asking those questions. Yeah, 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 that is true. So how do you feel about questions that you can't get an answer to? I think asking the questions are much more important than getting an answer. Hmm. When you say it's more right important, uh, what do you mean by it's more important? It's more important to whom, in what way? Um, I think a better way to phrase this is probably Personally, to me, when I'm asking the questions, mm -hmm. and even though I might not be able to get an answer afterwards, it tells me what I care about or what I'm trying to understand yeah. about this world. And it, allow it allows me to know myself better in a way of yeah. just observing what kind of questions I'm asking. Yeah. So it's kind of like I have another pair of eyes that's like, watching myself yeah ask like throwing out all these questions and observing which path i'm kind of leaning towards yeah yeah i think there is a quote by this i'm probably gonna mess this up maybe he was a russian philosopher called voltaire voltaire okay. who said judge a man not by his answers but by his questions yeah, yeah, yeah. i think i've yeah. heard of that quote before yeah so, yeah, when you say that it's important, it's more important what questions are being asked yeah. rather than the answers. One could ask, oh, when you say important, you imply that it matters. Like, how does it matter even what questions I'm asking? And I guess your answer is like it's a subjective. It's like a to subjective me, it matters. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Also, just judging from the fact that you're still asking questions, and maybe what those questions are don't matter that much, depends on how you feel. But the fact that you're still asking questions towards life, that means something to yeah. me, I think. Because yeah. it's very easy to just stop wondering or stop caring about things that you might, don't, you might not have an answer for, mm -hmm. right? Um, especially with all the distractions that's going on right now, you know, technology, entertainment, or... Um, extreme emotion experiences you can get from either drugs or like other kind of services that like technology could pro provide to you. I feel like a lot of people around me just kind of box their um, curiosities or their questions and try to not think about them mm. or just set them aside for a period of time just so you know. Yeah. So yeah, I think just merely the fact that you're still asking the questions is important. 
Yeah, so I definitely do appreciate that fact about this guy. And I really respect and I understand that it might sound absurd for a person like him to be, you know, he's so tormented in real life and he can't pay attention to other people or do his stuff because he's, he's just tormented by these abstract philosophical questions of yes. how can consciousness appear in a material world. Like a lot of people will scoff at this, like, wow, you can't get out of bed in the morning because you can't figure out... You're like, you're, you're bothered by all those yeah. ideas yeah. without like... Yeah. Yeah. But I truly understand that because yeah, I feel true. like, yes, when it comes down to it, these are the first questions that you must ask when you find yourself in this life. It's like, what is going on? Yeah. What is around me? Is there a purpose to life? And then I'll figure out if I should get out of bed and make myself breakfast. Yeah. I don't know which philosopher it was. I forget who it is, but there was this one philosopher who kind of decided that the big question, was it Kamu? I don't know. He said the first question, this might be wrong, it's kind of hearsay. But there was like this one philosopher who said the first question that we must settle an answer to before we do any other philosophy is the question of suicide. Is the question of is life worth living? I think living? it's Kamu. Yeah. It's Kamu. Is life worth living? And you can go about it, what I was saying before is that you can decide to go about it in an intellectual, philosophical way, trying to analytically discuss and derive yeah. whether life is worth living. But in my personal experience, you know, as someone who used to really grapple with such questions from an energy or an attitude of anxiety, and then eventually, because of some reasons, because of changes in life, uh, my attitude changed, my emotional composition changed. I started becoming um, uh, like a, a more fun, like fun-loving, happy person. I noticed that that change transformed my way of understanding what the answers to these questions are. Mm -hmm. And the answers did not come from the intellectual pursuit. The answers came from an emotional transformation. And you could ask questions about how that emotional transformation happens, which is a whole other thing that we can talk about. But that's something that is happening in a different plane than the intellectual plane. Yeah. But somehow that emotional transformation ended up changing the answers that I see to these intellectual questions. And if I was friends with this guy, for example, what I feel I would tell him is that, look, I don't know how the human brain works, but in my experience, the fact that you're so gripped by this kind of like, what seems to be this negative energy, that is coming from a very different place or that arises from a different place than the intellectual plane. And you don't have to figure out the answers to these questions in order to feel better. There are other things that you can possibly try, mm -hmm. just engage in life directly by keeping these questions aside for a moment. Yeah. There are ways that you can directly engage in life without having to figure out these questions first. Yeah. And just do that for a while. There are exercises that you can do. And then come back and tell me later, after a year or so, how do you feel about life in general and how do you feel about the answers to these questions? I think that's a very good suggestion or advice. And I, I wish I heard or I knew about this couple of years ago when I was baffled by those questions as well. But just over the years, or I think rather recently, I've come to realize that 
there is much value in like just living your life and immerse yourself in this whole experience that life gives you even though you don't ask any questions at all as well mm. of course there are still like nuances between this whole immerse yourself in life kind of attitude and just live your life and don't care about those, what those questions are kind of attitude but um i actually got inspired by a friend so i have a friend who, whom I actually met at work and I think we're pretty different people in a way that we're both happy and cheerful and all that but he's happy and cheerful mostly come, comes from a place in which he doesn't ask questions for most of the time he just kind of throws himself into the experiences and experiences emotions and whatsoever and that way of living is perfect fine for him and I see, I don't know, sometimes when I hang out with him, I almost appreciate this kind of attitude that he has towards life. This attitude of like, not asking why, just simply enjoying or like trying to enjoy the whole experience life throws at you. Mm. Yeah. 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 What makes you realize the importance of emotionally immerse yourself into life you know and that's like different from asking questions and all that well it really has to do with the way that I personally evolved mm -hmm. like you I guess there was this whole phase in my life for many years where I was really kind of fixated on answering intellectual and philosophical questions about what is the point of life, where did I come from, where am I going to go, what's going to happen after death, um, if you're all just going to die, what does it mean to be doing anything in life in the first place, etc. And I was a very cerebral kind of kid, meaning that just always asking these intellectual questions. Yeah. Um, and then in the last several years, I would say that there have been changes in my life and new experiences. Uh, oh, so cute, cute cat. Um, new experiences. Well, of course, some of it has been psychedelic experiences. Yeah. That's kind of the easiest thing to say. You tell someone, oh, hey, I did this drug and then it had this effect on me. And they would uh, not ask so many questions or they might ask, okay, what exactly was the experience on the drug? Yeah. So it's easier to just say, okay, yeah, I had some psychedelic experiences. But that doesn't, that's not the full story. There are also non-drug-induced experiences that I've had in my regular life, including mm -hmm. meditation. And also, after I got a few inklings of what this kind of immersive living is like, maybe with the help of drugs or something else, I tried to consciously try to make such decisions in my sober life mm -hmm. to deliberately be more immersive and be less cerebral and less intellectually asking questions. Once I had a couple of tools at my disposal to learn how to do that. And um, the more and more I do it, the more connected to life I feel. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because I felt like the deepest way to probe life was to ask these questions and have them answered. Yeah. 
Um, so I have learned a lot of lessons which I didn't think that I would be able to learn without the aid of asking intellectual questions. Right. But as you like really go into life, it teaches you so many things in non-verbal ways. Like they, the answers don't come packaged in words as a response to questions that have words. Mm -hmm. But you feel like directly connected and I think a lot of wisdom just kind of naturally arises from that. Um, That's very relatable actually. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of the times what I got are not explanations or descriptions yeah like a manual that tells you how to maneuver in your life that yeah. kind of thing but rather those are feelings yeah intangible things yeah. that life has taught me but do you think you know being able to leave this immersive kind of life um, or just throw yourself out there without asking too much too many questions and at the same time, still have those, you know, curiosities towards those yeah. intellectual questions. Do you think those two things could coexist? Or I hope so, because that's the kind of life I want to live. I Do you don't think you're living that life right now? I try every day. Okay. And to some extent, I am successful. So, okay, let me just give you an example. So this curiosity is actually very important to me. Yeah. And I would say that it's one of the ways in which I really deeply connect with life is yeah. because I'm curious about life. So what I am talking about is not, when I say immersive living or living in the moment, um, I'm not saying that you should just like get rid of all these questions. I'm saying that the answers to those questions are not necessarily arrived at by sitting in your couch all day and thinking about things. Mm -hmm. um, you can set aside those questions and get into direct immediate engagement with life and you just do this for a while you forget about the questions and you come back and report like months or years later and you then see the that answers become self-evident yeah the answers have become self-evident i one of the analogies that i use often and this is also true for describing the lessons that i've learned through meditation mm -hmm. is the art of learning something like learning to play the piano or learning to ride the bicycle yeah one per a person can just like sit on the couch all day and read this thick manual about bicycles and how they work and their physics and the body and you move to the right and then the thing the centripetal force balances the blah blah and so you move, and you can learn all about it and ask all these questions but it is a very different thing than learning to ride the bicycle yeah and when you're learning to ride the bicycle it's not happening at an intellectual level you set aside those questions. In fact, you have no place for asking those questions because if your attention goes to the questions, you fall from the bicycle. So you cannot both be doing that kind of immersive learning and intellectual thinking at the same time. The brain can only do one of those things at a time. But there is no substitute for actually getting on the bicycle, trying it, or like swimming, you try it, you fall from the bicycle or nearly drown several times. There is no guidance, like people telling you words does not help, you just get back on again. Yeah. But there's a way in which your body and more subconscious parts of your mind can immediately engage and learn from it. And then at some point, you become good enough that you can start telling people, oh, if, you, if, you, if your bike is tilting to the right, you should mo move your handlebars to the right or rotate. And someone can ask you, well, how do you know that? Do you read it in a book? So no, just like ride a bike and you know. I can't tell you how you know. It's just somehow I know, you know. So... There's all this kind of pre-verbal kinds of learning that happens. 
a very high dimensional, high bandwidth learning where there's not, no time for words. The information exchange is so quick. Like if you are on a bike, every moment there are so many tiny adjustments that your body is making and the bicycle is reacting and you're either falling or not falling. And that information is being fed back to you visually and through your skin and whatever. <clears throat> and this is happening at such great speed that your conscious mind cannot keep up with this. Yeah. Still, there's so much information flow. It's just not verbal. And that's, that is also a way of learning from life. Yeah. It's just not the intellectual or conceptual or, or language conscious way. I agree. Yeah. And there are two things I want to comment. The first thing is, I think it also kind of just relates back to what we were talking about when we walked out of the brunch place, when I was saying there's a fundamental difference between methodology yeah. and the core of the things that you're trying to get better at. Like, for example, you said a scientist might not be super great at math or like coding or whatever that's more of a specific skill, but this scientist would have a very good gut feeling or yeah. instinct about, yeah. you know, whether right kind of questions are being asked or whether this is the right direction for his research yeah. or something like that. Another thing I want to comment is just, you mentioned the word nonverbal, and I've thought quite a little bit about what what's the role of language play that's playing in like our understanding of the world or just our learning process or you know if we have something other than language like let's say if we live in like a sci-fi movie or something and if if we connect i don't know like if we start to hold hands or something then our thoughts just become flowy and then you immediately know what I'm thinking about without even the necessity of verbal communication. Do you think that in that way, you know, <coughs> you're kind of getting the learning experience but not from language. Yeah. And that way you're kind of you're kind of getting like a whole package. Yeah. So maybe in that way if you meet the guy that's in the homey post mm. and you don't have to tell him that oh you know, I've also been there and I know what you're struggling with and maybe you should try to just throw yourself into the life experiences. But simply by just holding his hands, he knows like everything you've been through. Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah. But there are ways in which, you know, that's, that's not technology that we have currently. Yeah. Although it's technology that's being worked on. Yeah. You know Elon Musk's new company, Neuralink? Yes, yes. I've heard of Neuralink. So imagine some future where we have direct brain-to-brain -brain connection. Yeah. And uh, you don't have to have language anymore mm -hmm. because you can just communicate your neural patterns to someone else and they'll immediately have the experience that you're having. However, yeah. I think language is not just a medium of communication. Language is also reality-making. You know, you, language is not, language is one of these very kind of deep skills that are learned by the brain. And a lot of the capacity for language is pre-verbal. Meaning, okay, so what do I mean by that? When you speak in language, of course, you're using words. And it's in a very conscious part of the brain. But the act of, a lot of the act of learning a language is subconscious. 
And I've noticed this because as an adult, I'm recently learning Spanish, which is, it's really interesting to learn a language as an adult because, you know, you learn your one, two or three languages when you were a child. And I think you're not so conscious at that time of what exactly is going on in my mind as I learned this language. Um, and it doesn't matter because a lot of language learning at that age is really kind of subconscious. You just pick up on patterns. It's just this kind of subconscious pattern recognition and you start saying the words and then put them together. As an adult, there is a conscious part of language learning. Like I do my exercises on Duolingo. Man, I'm going off on a tangent. But I, I do this exercise on Duolingo and so you know what words you're looking at or what exercises you're doing. However, I've noticed this component of a kind of subconscious unexpected things will happen as I'm learning this language. And if it's unexpected, it must mean that it's not fully conscious because I didn't expect this thing to just come out. So for example, when I was learning Spanish, in the beginning, I would have the tendency to do a word-by-word -word translation to English before I would, could tell what the sentence was saying in Spanish. Nowadays, I notice that as I read a Spanish sentence, a certain fraction of it will automatically map from the Spanish words to the picture without having to go through an English translation. Mm. And it's kind of a little phase transition that has happened in the brain, which did not happen consciously. I don't know how it happened, but I'm starting to kind of come to grip, grips with the Spanish language in a way that I couldn't. Like It's starting to feel kind of more organic and integrated and intuitive. And I definitely get this feeling that some of it is now arising from a deeper layer than the surface yeah. layer in which the training is happening. So, so, okay, so what I was trying to get at is if I was friends with this guy, what I would be concerned about is not that, oh my God, he doesn't have the answers to these deep existential questions. What I would be concerned about is my friend is not having a good time. You know, he's not having fun. He's not enjoying himself. He's kind of crippled with anxiety, which is what it seems like is the case. So what I would tell him is, all right, we are not going to go on an existentialist answer-finding quest. Mm -hmm. We are going to go dancing, or we are going to go rock climbing, or we are going to go kayaking. So it's almost like, you know, trading your body and your spiritual separately. I don't, I think they're related, but I would like approach it from a different point. Okay. So for example, if you go dancing, or you go rock climbing, in order to do that, in order to really immerse yourself and get enjoyment from that task, right. you, your attention really gets filled up with what your body is doing. Yeah. For example, if you're rock climbing on the wall, uh -huh. your attention is elsewhere in your thoughts and you're wondering, oh, what is the point of life? Mm -hmm. You're going to slip and fall, okay? But if you're like really perched and kind of hanging there, your body knows this sense is like, oh, I don't want to fall. Yeah. It's bad to fall. So intuitively, a lot of your attention is going to be forcibly taken up by the kinesthetics of what the body is doing. And the language and the verbal part is going to be set aside for mm -hmm. some time. It's going to recede into the background of, of your mind. Um, and you have that engagement. You just don't have capacity for thinking at that time. Right, but okay, so <coughs> my question is, do you think that's like a form of distraction? Distraction? Yeah. It is a form of distraction from thoughts, 
but thoughts are also a form of distraction from life. That's a very good way of yeah. putting it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, anything is kind of a distraction from other things. The question is, what is worth experiencing? Mm-hmm. And, um, okay, so for example, if on a particular evening you're feeling just kind of uncomfortable and empty and unfulfilled, you could turn on the TV. And the TV would be a distraction from these uncomfortable feelings that you're having. The question is not so much what is a distraction from what, because the mind only has finite capacity of attention. So you can think of it as um, like a bowl, and you can f- you can fill the bowl with whatever thing you want. You can replace one thing, and you can take an apple out and put a tomato in, and you know it, it can only hold one thing at a time. So anything is a distraction when when seen from the reference point of something yeah, else. Yeah, like yeah. a TV is a distraction from your thoughts. Yeah. Your thoughts are a distraction from your feelings. Your feelings are, I don't know. It's just <laughs> it depends like... depends on which yeah. x-axis and y-axis you're using as exactly. your reference. Yes. So I think what, comes, what it comes down to is more the question of what is worth spending your attention on? Yeah. What should you allow to fill up your attention? And in this particular case, it seems like this, this wonderful young man, um, whether or not deliberately, most of his attention has been filled up with these intellectual or philosophical existential questions. I feel like it's too much, too much. And so I've, I would take him and do activities where forcibly a lot of other nonverbal information takes up that scope of attention and then there will be during the time that he's doing these activities there is no space for the intellect to come and ask questions intermittently it might like he he's on the climbing wall for like 30 minutes and then he gets off and he's feeling a little good but then he starts questioning like what was the point of this but the voice that comes now into his attention and starts taking up room and starts asking those questions again had receded for some time And what I've personally experienced is that when I really do engage in these moments in life where it takes up so much attention that I can't ask these questions, it really is a great experience. And the voice that comes back and starts asking this question, so what was the point of it? It is a voice which, if I listen to it too much, actually makes me miserable. <laughs> and and uh, so the the paradox is that this voice claims to be trying to get you to these answers to these important questions yeah. and once you have the answers you're going to be happy but funnily when the voice shuts up is when you are much really better. yeah and i really feel connected to life which is what this voice is trying to get me to do ostensibly but sometimes it does like its intended purpose is fulfilled more when the voice goes away. Um, and I think a lot of things in life are kind of paradoxical like that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but the questions that he is asking are really genuine questions and I, I, and I respect yeah. the questions. And yeah. they're the mark of an intelligent and curious man. I would just hope for him, as for anyone else, to be able to find a path where you can joyfully engage in those questions. Like when I was a child, I used to be very curious about the world from a very young age. I knew that people, adults around me, identified this in me from a very young age. 
that he's like very kind of curious and dreamy about the world. And I think this is what motivated me to go into science is this joy that I find from curiosity and asking questions and, and, and finding answers. And then at some point, my scientific career became about other things. Mm -hmm. It became kind of riddled with anxiety about my place in this research group. And because I wasn't really enjoying what I was doing and creativity was at an all-time low, it became about this question of, oh, I need to publish this paper yeah. and I need to get this PhD. And what am I going to go next? How fast can I get this PhD done so I can leave this group, etc.? And, you know, over time, I gradually realized this, the way that I'm doing this science within quotes has very little similarity to the way that I was feeling or the way that I was motivated when I chose the path of science. The childlike curiosity, wonder and joy is gone. And without that, this is nothing. This science yeah. is nothing. So I, I realized that, you know, I was still kind of ostensibly doing science and like going to the lab and like doing these sciencey things and getting paid hourly. But it wasn't coming from the same place of motivation. And I had to like quit one research group and join another in order to start loving it. Yeah. And so it makes a heaven and hell difference. What, where, what place am I coming from when I'm asking these questions? Is it a place of curiosity and joy and love or is it a place of fear and anxiety? And like or somehow these answers are going to deliver me from from the crippling existential dread of life mm -hmm. i think from that place the answers never deliver you it's yeah it's kind of paradoxical yeah. like i feel like a lot of people will say well you won't even bother to ask those questions if you're fulfilled but i notice no that is not the case when i'm feeling happy and joyous is when i feel curious more about yeah. life and so the, the, the happiness and joy drives curiosity in me. Whereas when I'm feeling anxious, it gets kind of flipped on its head. And in my head, it's like, I need to have these answers in order to feel happy. Whereas the causal right. chain is opposite. Right. Really. Yeah, I think it also depends on what kind of expectation you have for those answers. Yeah. Like, are you expecting those answers to save you from the sufferings? Yeah. Or... Are you just seeking those answers for the sake of seeking them because yeah. you're a curiosity? Yeah. Or because you're curious to know um, eventually <coughs> what are the answers to those problems? Yeah. And I also think one of the reasons why, you know, the kind of paradox you mentioned exists is that you draw a connection between, um, I guess, Trying to think of a better way of putting it. So, like for example, if you think you're experiencing things and you're like super happy about it, but at the same time you start to ask yourself all this kind of existential questions of like, what's the meaning of all this? Why am I doing all this? Does it make sense to me even though I'm so happy right now? Um, it's kind of like saying your happy feelings are um, inferior to knowing the answers. Yeah. You know, like if I don't know the answer, then even though I'm feeling happy right now, this whole like happy feeling doesn't mean anything mm. because it could just all be an illusion or like yeah. it just an emotional like influx or something like that. Yeah. But I think being able to say that 
me feeling happy and me seeking answers or asking questions could be completely parallel to each other yeah. or there's no really party or something like that and even though I don't know the answers or I don't ask the questions the feelings of happiness that I'm getting at this moment is real that also matters yeah and that matters an equal amount yeah. of you know me trying to ask the questions and stuff. Yeah, yeah 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 true um And yeah, like you said, this could all be an illusion. And we totally. could wake up somewhere in like complete hell. And say, well, you had your like, you know, you, you had your little dream of like having a life and now you yeah. suffer forever. Yeah. It, uh, I mean, any of this like infinitely arbitrary things can turn out to be true. But the, I don't think there's any point of like, you, you're not going to be able to make up your mind about w what life like really is. So there is a certain limit to the extent to which asking these existentialist questions is going to really bring you anything meaningful in the moment. Mm -hmm. now you can ask all of these questions, but then I feel like at some point you realize that whether or not you're happy comes down to just the present moment yes, and agree. not the answers to this kind of you know, hypothetical questions about what is going to happen after I die or what is the point of life. All of these questions, if you notice, are about, are about not right now and not right here. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I also think a lot of the times, and it's an interesting finding, I think, a lot of the times the answers you're seeking mm often emerge when you're not actually sticking it yeah true yeah true like for example one of the most trivia example i i would have is probably like when i was taking a walk or like taking a break doing my laundry or like do something that's like completely does not require the engagement of my consciousness or something mm. like i'm taking a shower but something i've been thinking for a while and i don't have an answer for would just kind of like quickly jump into my mind and yeah. I would have this flash of thought yeah. that you know just enlightened me yeah. and stuff like that yeah yeah, yeah. Well, I mean so much of the mind is subconscious it's you don't know what processing is happening yeah. in the background or what answer is going to jump out when yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, the intellectual the verbal part of the mind has this kind of ego that comes with it. It's like the only thing that's happening is my thinking. The only way we're going to figure anything out is by thinking. Yeah. The only thing I know is that which I can say to myself mm -hmm. in my brain. And the only way to make any progress in life or get out of problems is to think about stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, the more you engage with it verbally, whether in your mind or in a conversation with other people, the more it reinforces itself, you know. Um, so sometimes you just gotta like, all right, in order to play any game other than this intellectual thought, verbal game, I cannot be discussing this whole thing verbally. I actually have to shift modes completely and put my brain into a non-verbal gear. Yeah. So and then I can do it. And then later on, when I shift back into the verbal gear, the, the brain might start dissecting and analyzing this non-verbal yeah. experience. But a lot of things of value come not from the verbal or the thinking mind. 
as I have found. Yeah. The thinking mind is quick to um, appropriate it and say, all right, I'm going to now take it. It's coming. It's like there's this treasure trove in your subconscious mind. And every once in a while, like, it gives you something. And the talking part of the mind will immediately claim it and say, okay, I figured this out or I thought about this. Now let's like discuss, dissect, analyze. How do I get more of this, blah, blah. But it didn't come from the thinking mind. And it's just this like kind of like this egoistic, super chatterbox kind of person who just like takes whatever and then and this is to do this, do this. I'm like, come on, dude, just give it a break. You didn't come up with this shit. All right. And, and really, really. It's like you yeah. have a fruit, like yeah trying to do psychoanalysis on the background or something yeah and it's like you, it's it's really a kind of really proud and self-important part of your mind it's like oh i'm doing everything i'm like thinking i'm analyzing i'm like <laughs> like dude you have a pretty false a sense of how much you actually achieve yeah. a lot of things actually happen and you just provide me this unending monologue Mm-hmm. of how you were responsible for organizing and directing my thoughts and making decisions and judgments and blah, blah. A lot of this, in fact, neurologists will tell you that there are certain brain impairments which kind of make it clear that this kind of talking part of the brain, what it really is doing is kind of always coming up with post-facto monologues describing or explaining what is happening. Yeah. Um, like A constantly this, trying uh, to explain Yeah. Yeah. Also, I feel like a lot of times the brain, what the brain is trying to do is just to come up with things yeah. that like didn't really exist yeah. or trying to find explanations for things that, you know, happen, but yeah. maybe you don't know why or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And it's the same with memories. So I, like for, maybe for some memories I had seven years ago, I only had very, um, hazy feelings about it or I don't have any specific details remembered mm. but what my brain would do is my brain would fill in those details just by yeah. imagination so sometimes when I ask my mom or when I talk to my families about something that's happened uh, that happened when I was very little mm. my description or my memory would vary very differently it would be very different mm. than what they told me or like what they remembered I see. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I mean, coming back to this honey guy, the questions that he's asking, I would be interested in like sitting down and kind of having a conversation about them because yeah. it's intellectually stimulating. Like the, the question of how does consciousness arise in a material world? I have a lot of things to say about it and I hope to have this conversation with you. But uh, it's also important to me now given the things that I've experienced and learned, to have that conversation in a joyful spirit. It's like, hey, this is what I figured out, and it's cool. And let's go to a club later and just like, <laughs> and dance later also, you know? Like, we don't have to figure this shit out before we, are, we allow ourselves to feel less have miserable. Have a little bit of fun first. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think part of our, the, the joy of engaging with life is this way of asking these questions and trying to figure the world out but it's so much cooler if you like do it from a place of like wonder and joy and love and like hey look this is what i think well you know i agree yeah i agree all right that's i think a good stopping point for that topic for the honey post for the honey post okay
but I'm glad that we got the juices flowing. We hope you enjoyed joining us today in the Room of Lives. In the next part, Jackie and I will discuss death, our personal and social perceptions of it, near-death experiences, and the connection between psychedelics and the fear of death.